raise your hand if you're the kind of person who goes to the movies and after the movie is over, you stay in your seat to watch the credits roll by. And I'm not talking about a Marvel movie where you expect there to be a little something after the credits. I just mean you like to enjoy almost no one. Uh, I was hoping to find another person like me uh, in this way. I, in fact, am one of those people uh, who likes to enjoy sitting while the music of the theme of the movie plays and the, the credits roll, and I reflect on the movie and process it. And usually the people that I'm with, you know, gather their things and they lean over and they're, are you ready to go? No, I'm not ready to go. And then they sit there awkwardly and wait for me. Uh, Well, what I've learned is that it seems like most people do that. Uh, I seem to be the minority as demonstrated by the hand raising exercise. They don't see it have any kind of effect on them. That's kind of like our passage today in the Gospel of Mark. What we have is basically a list of places and people. And our default might be to let our eyes just hover over them, skip on to the next paragraph in our devotional reading. But actually, I think there's a lot that we can unpack here. So turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 3. Eight hundred and thirty-eight of the Bibles underneath the chairs, and as you're turning there, allow me to give you some of the context of Mark's gospel up to this point. Uh, we come to a point in Mark's gospel where summary comments are needed, a recap of Jesus's life and ministry so far, and in fact, that's exactly what Mark is doing in the next few sections for us. Jesus has done amazing things. He's traveled around a little and said some shocking things. He's performed miracles and stunned people as he goes about. The people he has amazed, but the religious leaders have been frustrated, so much so that what we heard last of them was that they were plotting to destroy him, given the five instances of conflict where they butt their heads together. Mark gives a sweeping summary of Jesus' ministry as a whole. And it just so happens that this next section of verses is the longest summary of Jesus' ministry in the entire gospel, in the whole book. Well, the gospel of Mark as a whole is about the good news of the person of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of his very life. So the book is dedicated to the story of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he means for the world. So, so far in the first three chapters, there's been a mixture of teaching, of miracles, with a special emphasis on his preaching and his teaching with his miracles supporting that. His first words in the book were a sermon in which he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, implying that he is bringing the kingdom of God. And he then says, repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. And that good news is that Jesus came as a ransom for many, that he lived the perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He rose three days later so that anyone who put their trust in him and turned from their sins could be saved. Well, the book, the gospel, culminates at the crucifixion. But nobody knows that in the story yet, except for Jesus. That is, the people around him don't know what his intentions are exactly yet. For now, he's been healing people, casting out demons, calling others to him, eating with sinners, arguing with Pharisees over traditions. He's quite the figure. Well, up to this point, the opposition has been mild, but it's growing steadily. This uh, section of verses that we're coming up to may seem redundant at first, like we've already heard these things, if you've been listening or following along and reading Mark's gospel with us. But while we've heard some of these things already, 
try to pay close attention to what the Spirit may have to teach you in this specific section. I pray that these truths will encourage you in your own walk with Christ, that these verses will deepen your trust in Jesus, and that they will empower you to live a life, uh, live in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called to. Let's read our verses together now. Mark 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's an interesting set of verses, isn't it? Uh, We can admit that. And we can admit that they're not as exciting, perhaps, as Jesus healing a paralytic uh, or going head-to-head with the religious leaders of the day. So what does this list of places that you may not know or hardly know of and people, only half of which have been mentioned so far, what are these lists have to do with us? Well, we should keep in mind that Mark is writing this account for believers in the church of Rome during a time of torment and confusion under the Roman Empire. Some members of the church may have even been alive to know their previous pastor, Peter. Some may have remembered him to be crucified upside down by his requests. There may have been relatives of these very disciples in the church there. One thing we know for certain is that the church would have been eager to know about the life of their Savior on earth and the authority he carried when he established their church. seems like every chapter in Mark emphasizes this authority and identity of Jesus. Well, these verses are not an exception to that. So the main idea of this section is that Jesus accomplishes his mission in people and through people. Jesus accomplishes his mission in people and through people. That's what we see him do, beginning with the ministry to his disciples, all the way down to the generations of you and me. Jesus calls people to himself, begins a new work in them, and then uses them to build his kingdom. That's what happens to the disciples in a unique way, And that's what eventually will happen through the institution of the local church as well. Well, to help us see that main idea in these verses, I've got three points for you this morning, each being a a summary explanation, because I think that's what Mark is doing with these verses. So the first is a summary of Jesus' ministry, and that's verses 7 through 12. The second is a summary of Jesus' men in verses 13 through 19. And then third is a summary of Jesus' mission, his ministry, his men, and his mission. Let's begin by considering point one, a summary of Jesus' ministry. So the first thing to note about this summary Mark gives us is that crowds are coming from all over the place to see Jesus, which is an amazing thing. Look again at verses 7 and 8. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to is 
just the sheer size of the crowd. We already have an idea based on just the number of places that these people are coming from. But what we may not know is that Mark uses a word that is not the typical word that we translate as crowd. Uh, We in English say great crowd, but I think it does kind of miss the point a little bit. So uh, if I saw 100 or 200 people, I would probably call that a crowd. Uh, If that grew to thousands of people, then I might use a different word, like I would maybe say a horde of people, a mass of people, a great multitude. Well, that's what Mark is doing here. He says that it's a great crowd. Scores of people are coming from all over. And it just goes to show that people who shrug Jesus off as a minute person in history have probably not read the Bible for themselves. Jesus' ministry at this point has exceeded John the Baptist. And at this point, it seems like without even trying... He's drawn a lot of attention to himself. Mark shows us that while there is tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, it seems like the common people didn't have a problem with him, and they actually really uh, wanted to be around him. And what's interesting about this summary is that the crowd even becomes a hindrance to his ministry. So look at verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So I don't know what you think of when you're picturing Jesus' ministry. Uh, Growing up, I saw a lot of pictures where Jesus was, you know, in a green field with a flock of sheep next to him, sitting on a rock, maybe with a couple of kids in his lap smiling, and it just looked peaceful and calm. But that is not the picture that Mark is giving us at all. No, in fact, there's so many people that this crowd is becoming dangerous. So much so that he asks his disciples to prepare a boat for him. And what that means is they're at the Sea of Galilee. He can get away from the crowds by getting on presumably one of their fishermen boats uh, and distance himself from them while they're on the shore. And he does, in fact, do that later in Mark's gospel. He teaches as they align the shore. But in this this instance, Mark just notes it for us to show uh, the size and the, the threat of the crowd. You may remember in chapter 1, verse 45, Mark tells us that Jesus could no longer enter any towns openly, but had to retreat to desolate places. Uh, People were coming to him from every quarter, is what it says, and it seems like that reputation has only grown since then. Well, that was after Jesus went all throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Now people are coming from not just those areas that he went, but even beyond those areas. So there are seven uh, areas referenced. We have Galilee, where Jesus preached his first sermon and where he is now. We're pretty familiar with that one. Uh, Judea, just south of Galilee and uh, heavily Jewish. Uh, That's where the capital city Jerusalem is, which is also mentioned. Uh, And then a strange mention after that, a a place called Idumea. Uh, If you have maps in the back of your Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to turn to the back and find the map that says Palestine in the time of Jesus. Uh, Unfortunately, the the Bibles that we have under the chairs don't have maps in them. Sorry about that. Uh, I'll try to give gestures. Um, But what you'll see, Idumea is just south of Judea, okay? So it's beyond Judea, which is heavily Jewish. And Idumea is actually the only, uh, this mention of it is the only mention in the entire New Testament. So it's just kind of out of the ordinary. You know, well, what we also see is general regions. Uh, so he says beyond the Jordan, which is east. Remember, I'm doing the map backwards for you. So you have Galilee, Judea, Idumea, and then east of the Jordan, beyond the Jordan, and then way up north and northeast, you have Tyre and Sidon. All of those areas are not really known to be Jewish populations. Um, most likely some Jews were coming from those places. But I think what Mark is communicating is that people are coming from all over and beyond in every direction, and they're not necessarily all Jews. But why are they all coming to him? Well, you already know, Jesus has been preaching, healing, and casting out demons. What's interesting, though, is uh, throughout the book so far, Mark has emphasized Jesus' teaching ministry. But here... He doesn't really mention it in the summary. And I think that what that shows us 
is that while Jesus set out to teach and perform miracles on the way, others set out to come to him to be healed, not to listen to his teaching. So here we learn just one maybe practical application is that an increase in numbers, sheer size, is not necessarily a successful ministry. Uh, That's one of the reasons why we don't model our church after the largest megachurches in America. Uh, We don't want to draw people in just for the sake of drawing them in. We don't want to just attract people to, you know, a production of music or the accessibility of our website uh, or the incredibly relative topics of our sermons. Not that there's anything wrong with those, uh, and I think that actually our music and our website are quite good. Uh, Thank you if you contribute to that. But we want to attract people to the message that we preach because we want to emphasize the things that Jesus emphasized. It also shows that people in general can be far more concerned with physical needs rather than spiritual needs. And we know that just because the crowds are nearly crushing him uh, just to touch him. So we'll read later on in the story about a woman who touches his robe behind him and she's healed and he feels the power going out from him and turns around and asks who touched him. And uh, while that's not mentioned quite yet, we just know that that's kind of what is happening with Jesus. So people are coming to him, trying to touch him, trying to be healed, uh, so much so that there's fear that he might even be crushed. Well, we can over-prioritize our physical needs over our spiritual needs as well, can't we? Uh, Our prayers can easily be filled with things that pertain only to physical needs rather than spiritual needs. And it's not wrong to pray for physical needs. That's a good thing to do. But we need to recognize that our greatest need is spiritual. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Read through Paul's epistles. Something you'll notice, if you pay attention to all of the prayers he prays for all these churches, you'll notice that many of his prayers for other believers are focused on their spiritual state rather than their material needs, even though these are Christians who are in hostile positions, who are threatened regularly. And I'd encourage us just to model our prayers the same way. Uh, I've been praying through the church directory for months, even before I came here and met many of you, and uh, before I learned all of your specific situations and learned about you as, uh, as members of this church. But I just prayed good general things that I read in the Bible. And it's amazing how often those prayers hit home. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. A prayer like 2 Thessalonians 3.5 is always appropriate. It says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That's a good prayer to pray for your brothers and sisters. The last thing I want to point out about this summary in verses 7 through 12 is just the reminder that Jesus is doing ministry on his own terms. So as he goes about... Demons recognize Jesus. Uh, One calls him the Holy One of God in chapter 1, verse 24. And he even asks if Jesus has come to destroy him. Which just tells us something interesting about Jesus' divine reputation, right, in the spiritual realm. Well, Mark not only tells us that demons continue to recognize him, but that they also acknowledge his authority. They have to obey when he commands them. And notice Mark says that whenever the unclean spirit saw him. So this means it wasn't just a one-time deal or sporadic event. It seems like wherever Jesus is going and there are demons present, uh, they reveal themselves and shout out to him. But in every place and in every situation, Jesus has authority over the evil spirits of the world. In verse 11 of our text today, Mark tells us, they cry out, you are the son of God. A confession which turns out to be true. Of Jesus. But remember that you can believe Jesus, and you can believe correct things about Jesus. You can believe he's the Son of God, for example, and still reject him as Lord. To trust him as Lord means to rely on him, to obey him, 
So friend, if you're here today and you only acknowledge Jesus, that's not enough to be right with God. If you want real, live faith, you need only to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, but you need to worship Him like it as well. James calls this kind of acknowledging, uh, without submission, faith that's dead. But you don't want dead faith. You want live faith. Uh, If you find that's true about you today, I would encourage you to trust the Lord and put your faith in Him today. Turn away from sin and run towards Jesus. Well, Jesus here commands the demons to be silent, uh, which sounds almost counterintuitive to His ministry. But the demon wasn't the right source for the people to learn who he was. It was the, right, was the wrong source and also the wrong time. The time of this confession would come later, and it would be done privately by Peter in chapter 8, and then publicly at the cross by a Roman centurion. Jesus doesn't let the demons promote his ministry. That privilege and authority would only be given first to his disciples, Which leads me to point two, the second summary, a summary of Jesus' men. Mark gives us this summary of the 12 disciples in verses 13 through 19. Uh, And it's kind of like the Ten Commandments. Like we all know what they are as an entity, um, but if asked to name all of them, we might struggle to get through it. Well, Jesus goes up on a hill, presumably to get away from the crowds and avoid getting crushed. And then Jesus chooses 12 men from among those massive crowds of people to be his disciples. And these disciples go down in history as the 12 disciples. Five of them we already know about. Four of them were fishermen, Peter, Andrew, Andrew, James, and John, those two sets of brothers uh, who Jesus called from their boats and their fishing nets. And then Matthew, who was previously mentioned uh, by the name of Levi. He was a tax collector. So Jesus has already had these men around him and traveled with them. He went to Peter's mother-in-law's house to heal her. He also had a banquet with uh, Matthew or Levi at his house with a number of other sinners and tax collectors. But this moment is a deciding moment in Jesus' ministry because he brings a few disciples and makes them a unit. And as this unit, they have a unique authority. And this is a good reminder for us that Jesus calls whoever he wants. And whoever he calls, they'll come. Whoever Jesus calls, he will use. This is what some theologians have called effective calling or irresistible grace. It's the power of God demonstrated in calling someone to him and seeing them obey, unable to do anything else. Well, this gives us two reasons that we can be confident in our evangelism. That's like the number one question, right? Whenever you're talking to someone about God's sovereignty, well, then what's the point in evangelizing? Well, if Jesus can use fishermen and tax collectors, first off, uh, he can use you and me. Jesus uses ordinary people here. Secondly, if Jesus plans on calling someone to faith, he'll make our evangelism effective by his Spirit so long as we faithfully share the message with others. So parents, you can't teach or get your kids into heaven. Uh, You can't make them love Jesus. But you can give them the tools to help them understand what making that choice will mean for them. You can give them the knowledge that they'll need to count the cost. And you are are an extension of Jesus' ministry to your kids in a unique way that no one else is. Friends, if you're uh, not a believer in Jesus, uh, then you have to decide if Jesus is worth it, whether or not you want to live for yourself or live for the world. And whatever you think the world has to offer, uh, I can promise you that Jesus is better. Those things won't give you lasting satisfaction or peace. Only Jesus can give you real happiness and meaning in life. Everything else will fall short. Well, who does Jesus say, uh, or who does Mark say that Jesus calls to himself here in verse 13? Those whom he desired, and he appoints them as apostles. 
Now, that word apostle simply means messenger. So there's a little bit of meaning in the very name that they're to, to carry a certain message. Uh, that's a good description of what they're going to do uh, later on in their lives for Jesus. But Jesus is also giving them uh, authority in the life of the early church. From this point forward, these 12 men would be known as the apostles with a unique authority. And he explains what that will include in verses 14 and 15. It says, And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So there's two reasons for choosing the 12 here. First is so that they would simply be with him. In being with him, Jesus would spend a lot of time in private pouring into these men. Uh, Of all of the miracles that he performs and the great crowds that he drew, he decides to just spend intimate, personal time with a few. He would explain his teachings to them patiently. When he taught in parables and they didn't understand, privately he would explain to them what they mean. They would also travel with him and witness all of his miracles firsthand. They would listen to his sermons in order to learn the message so that they would be equipped to teach themselves. And that's the second reason Jesus calls them. So first, to be with him. Second, to go out and preach. And in that preaching, uh, they're also casting out demons with authority. So they're sent out. Uh, They're going out to do what Jesus said he would make them do in chapter 1, become fishers of men. So while Mark doesn't elaborate on what they'll be preaching, we can assume that Jesus will have them preach the same things that Jesus was preaching. And because his teaching carries authority, these disciples have authority as well, insofar as they preach that same message of repentance and belief in Jesus. The second part of them being sent out in verse 15 is that they will have authority to cast out demons. So far, that's been unique to Jesus. Uh, But Jesus is not just an authority by himself. Uh, Here he shows that he's an authority distributor. And he authorizes the twelve to wield his message and power. Uh, And we know that they're going to be healing as well, though Mark doesn't mention that specifically here. And this is where I got the main idea, that Jesus accomplishes his mission in people and through people. We see that uh, just displayed in the disciples, in that he's going to draw them to himself, accomplish his mission inside of them, and then use them to go out and build his kingdom. Jesus' ministry here is all about people. Those whom Jesus calls to himself are changed from the inside out. After the softening heart of a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells inside every Christian. And then we do kingdom work by ministering to one another here in the local church, by spreading the gospel to friends and family and co-workers and neighbors. So, do you see one of your primary jobs or roles as a Christian as ministering to others? The disciples had to learn from Christ how to do that first, and we need to as well. So if you're unsure how to do that in your own life or what that would look like, uh, it's okay to ask someone else, uh, how can I encourage or build up others in my life? For those who have been Christians for a long time, do you follow this model of inviting others into your life to grow together and to sharpen each other spiritually? Are you patient towards others who don't seem to be growing? Uh, We'll see Jesus exercise a lot of patience throughout the rest of the gospel with his disciples. And are you humble enough to admit your need uh, for help from others in your own growing? You might be tempted to look around the room and think, I don't have anything to learn from, from these people. But did you know that we are in a better position in some ways than the disciples? They absolutely had a unique perspective, uh, and I would love to spend time with Jesus. But we have the whole corpus of Scripture at our fingertips. Uh, They couldn't just pull up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount on their phone and reread it whenever they wanted to, to be reminded. Uh, We now have Scripture and the Holy Spirit to build up the church, two gifts given 
uh, of authority to the local church that every believer has access to. Now, note the order of these things. First, the task is to spend time with Jesus, which is a crucial step if you want to understand how to teach others about him. We have to spend time learning about Jesus ourselves, making sure we understand him. Just like any other relationship, if you want to get to know someone and learn what pleases them, uh, what makes them happy, you have to spend time with them. So the only way for us to learn about Jesus and become more like him is to study his word and to spend time in prayer. That's the best way that we could prepare ourselves for this kind of ministry as well. Now, I don't know what this list of names means to you. Uh, Frankly, we don't know a lot, actually, about most of these names. So let me just run through and give a whole uh, number of lists for you that might seem interesting to you, but it's basically the summary of what we know about these men. So first, Simon. He's given the name Peter or Petros, which is not a common name at that time in Greek, but it sounds like Petra, which is the word for stone. The early church would have been familiar with the meaning behind this, especially the church in Rome. And Peter, in every list of the disciples, in Matthew and Luke and in Acts, Peter is always listed as the first apostle. James and John are called Boanerges, which is a Greek word that literally means sons of thunder. And uh, we don't really know why he gave them this nickname, but we can guess that maybe they were just really enthusiastic and zealous disciples. Uh, they're the ones who would ask Jesus later that if, uh, if he would allow them, they wanted to sit at his right and his left hand in glory. And uh, that upset some of the other disciples. Andrew was Peter's brother, Simon Peter's brother, another fisherman. Philip and Bartholomew, we don't know much about, but they're Greek names. Matthew was introduced as Levi, the tax collector. And if you want to learn him, about him, uh, re- read through Mark 2, 13 through 22. Uh, or listen to that sermon on our website. Thomas is most famously known to be doubting Thomas because he didn't believe Jesus when he reappeared to him after he resurrected from the dead uh, until he felt the wounds in his hands where the nails pierced him. He's also referred to as the twin in other Gospels, even though uh, we never hear about his brother. James, the son of Alphaeus, is not Peter's brother. He's also not Jesus' brother or James the Younger. There's a lot of Jameses in the Bible, and so one of the things that the authors of, scriptures, of the scripture, scriptures do when they say son of this, they're designating and making this person distinct from other people who share the same name. Thaddeus is um, another Judas, but he probably didn't like being called Judas uh, after his time with Jesus and the, the disciples, so most likely he started going by Thaddeus uh, after Judas got the reputation of betraying Jesus. So Mark records him as Thaddeus here. And then there's another Simon who is called the Zealot, which uh, you may think is a description of his passion, but it's actually not. Uh, uh, The Zealots were a movement. They were actually political revolutionaries. And so uh, by identifying Simon as a Zealot, he's saying that he's a part of this politically extreme extremist group. So the zealot movement was one of the leading causes behind the Jewish revolt and would eventually lead to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Finally, uh, Judas was a very common name, as it was the Greek version of Judah. And Iscariot makes him the most famous Judas of all time. Uh, Even if you've never read the Bible, you probably know exactly who that is. Mark even makes a note for us, the readers, that he's the one who betrays Jesus. Judas is always listed last in these lists. The rest of the New Testament doesn't really add anything, or much else at least, about the disciples in verses 18. So from Philip on, essentially. So it's quite a list of men. Thank you for patiently bearing with me as I ran through that. It was interesting for some people, I'm sure. But what can we learn from this list? Well, first, it shows historical integrity that Mark would write out the names of each disciple and uh, with really unnecessary details, it seems like, to distinguish them from others with the same name. 
So if this was a made-up list, you were trying to start a movement, you probably wouldn't mention the names of exact specific people that other Christians in the early church would know. Uh, you would probably leave them vague so that, uh, so that you could get away with it. Second, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it may have served as an encouragement for the church. Uh, if they knew some of these apostles or were related to them, this recounting of Jesus appointing them undergirds their authority in the teachings that they handed down to the church. Third, Jesus certainly didn't choose any of these men because of their credentials. Um, if anything, what we learn about these men is that they're ordinary, unremarkable almost. Uh, they're not exactly a group of elite advisors or strong men for Jesus. They're fishers, they're tax collectors, a zealot, and who knows what else. Fourth, only Jesus could bring together a mixed bag like this. Uh, a tax collector and a revolutionary like Simon the Zealot, these are two extreme opposites in the culture, and they would normally never be seen together. But that's a picture of the people Jesus surrounds him with, and that's a picture of what the people of God will be. Uh, in Revelation 7, 9, people made up of all tribes, tongues, and nations, so too the church today can't be explained by any kind of worldly affinity. If it is, then we've probably made that infinity more important than the that unites us. These people together, unless Jesus has called them. So no matter your history, your interests, your political views, your favorite sports team, your social class, your identity as a member and a brother or sister in Christ is more important. Never underestimate what God can do with ordinary people. It's almost like the important thing about this group is that they weren't very important. Uh, yet God used them to begin Christianity. God uses people all the time who are never remembered or never known. So don't assume that God can't use you to speak powerfully into someone's life. We can be like Paul and boast in our weaknesses because we know that our weaknesses will put God's power on display more clearly. So that's the summary of Jesus' men. But if Mark provided a summary of his ministry in 12, 7 through 12 and then a summary of his men in 13 through 19, uh, both of these summaries here in the Gospel of Mark would set up his future ministry, or sorry, his future mission. So that's point three, is a summary of his mission. And here I'd like to just make a few comments about theological realities uh, that are present here in this text due to their context in what's called salvation history, uh, basically the history of the world. The first thing to point out here is that in appointing these 12 apostles, Jesus is creating a new people because Jesus came not just to mend the Mosaic Covenant, but to make a new and an everlasting covenant. To write out the law not on stone tablets, but on our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah said that when that day comes, quote, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Uh, in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel speaks of the new covenant, he says he will gather his people that are scattered all over the countries and rescue them. Well, it's clear that in these verses, Jesus is creating a new people because of the symbolism of the number 12. Have you ever wondered why Jesus picked 12 men to be his disciples instead of 5 or 20 well, I propose that Jesus intentionally appoints 12 disciples to represent him just like God appointed 12 tribes of Israel to be set apart from the rest of the world as the people of Yahweh. Similarly, Jesus announces the kingdom of God has come with his arrival. Uh, and after preaching some, he appoints 12 men whom he calls apostles. And these apostles were to be an extension of his ministry calling other men and women to him. 
He's already referred to himself as the bridegroom among his people, uh, a term that God used to refer to himself in relation to his people to Israel. And we know that the disciples will eventually uh, go out and do these things. They'll plant churches in the book of Acts through the message of Christ. And so this new people is created here by appointing the twelve. We've already noted how in church history these twelve apostles are important. And their number is important. We know that because in the book of Acts, uh, one of the first things that the disciples do after Jesus ascends and leaves them is they replace Judas so that they can continue to have the number 12 uh, apostles. That unit itself, that number, carries authority and provides a more complete, holistic representation. One commentator uh, makes a note that Jesus here doesn't include himself in the 12, which is interesting. He appoints them, he names them, and in doing this, he demonstrates his authority over them. So once again, he's just saying he's, authority, he's authoritative over all of the people of God. Now, much like the apostles have a unique relationship, not only to Jesus, but they have a unique relationship to each other. They're not just called disciples of Christ, but they're fellow apostles. Uh, so too, servants of Christ, believers today, are not just called to be Uh, Believers in Jesus, but they're called to be brothers and sisters of one another in the family of God. That's why Paul says in Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Well, another important shift in history we see in these verses is Jesus' succession plan for once he's gone. These verses are kind of like a will of Jesus, uh, a will that you write so that uh, when you pass away, family members know what to do with your belongings uh, and things like that. And I say that because he's doing his due diligence to ensure that his message continues to go out even once he leaves. And he does this by appointing men to continue the work. And I should note that these apostles... Uh, don't have authority to make other apostles. That's something that only Jesus can do. And it's something that Jesus only did once. There's no such thing as a succession of the office of apostle. Once a will is written, uh, a family member can't just um, amend it and uh, change it. Similarly, these men were chosen by Jesus in this explicit circumstance. They're the only ones who spend time with Jesus like this, Uh, And that kind of exposure and instruction given by Jesus is not given to anyone else except for Paul, who refers to himself as one untimely born. And you'll remember that the resurrected Christ met Paul. His name was Saul at the time on the road uh, and asked him why he was persecuting him, referring to the church, the body of Christ. So Christians, beware of people who call themselves modern-day apostles as if they have some kind of special anointing from God outside of what we see in Scripture. Jesus appointed these without any indication that the office would remain after them. And we know from Acts that these apostles preached boldly and witnessed the Holy Spirit being poured out to ordinary believers. God used the apostles to write Scripture. But once the church had Scripture and the Holy Spirit, we have all the knowledge and authority We need to please God and to contribute to the mission of Jesus. The only hierarchy today is Christ as the head of the church, and his word alone is authoritative. Just as Israel was a priestly nation, the New Testament teaches a priesthood of all believers because all are filled with the Spirit. And as Paul says in 1 Timothy, there is one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, we need to beware uh, that we also don't put ordinary Christians today up on a pedestal. Uh, While there are many believers who are very gifted preachers and authors, and we should praise God for the fruit of their ministries, uh, each one of them is a blood-bought brother or sister in Christ. Each one of them is also susceptible to sin, like we are. Setting them up on a pedestal only 
sets us up for deep discouragement uh, if or when they succumb to sin. We shouldn't let sin surprise us. We should remember that even the greatest preachers are mere men, that they're empowered by the Holy Spirit and Jesus, uh, not themselves. Another point of application is that we should be like Jesus in investing in others, uh, who will, specifically others who will not be around once we leave, younger generations. Jesus didn't tell us when he would come back. Uh, he didn't promise us tomorrow. He could come back before the end of this sermon. But to him, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And until he does come back, we should take a special interest in discipling and teaching younger generations of Christians. Well, there's one last thing I want you to see from this text, and that's the mention of the twelfth disciple, Judas Iscariot. What does the mention of a traitor indicate for us? Well, for starters, it doesn't just give us a heads up, uh, reading it, to what will happen in the story. It isn't just a well-documented history. It is those things. Let's not just ask why Mark included it in his gospel. But the deeper question is, why did Jesus call a man that he knew would betray him to be one of his 12 apostles? Jesus has already shown that he knows that People, he knows what people are thinking when he confronts the Pharisees. But Jesus here knows exactly what he's doing. When Peter confesses him to be the Christ in chapter 8, he predicts his death and resurrection to Peter. Uh, Peter rebukes him. And then you'll remember Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. And he says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Peter didn't want to believe what Jesus was planning. And Jesus wasn't going to let anything interfere with his plan either. Jesus appoints Judas to be one of the 12 disciples because he is sovereignly working in these men to accomplish his mission. And through Judas, we have the greatest example of God using wickedness to accomplish his purposes. Because through Judas' sinful actions for silver, Jesus accomplishes what he set out to do. He was betrayed, yet willingly goes to the cross to die as a ransom for many. That's also one of the reasons Jesus doesn't let the demons announce that he's the Son of God to the world. Jesus is controlling his story and his reputation. And you, re you may remember uh, many during that time expected the Son of God to come and lead a revolt against the Roman government a kind of military takeover. So if Jesus attracted unwanted attention from the government as a result of a demon proclaiming that he was the Son of God, and then they took him that way, we might be tempted to think that his arrest and his crucifixion was an unfortunate accident. It was a mistake, but it wasn't. Jesus had a plan. And each step of the way was ordained by him before the foundations of the world. That's what Ephesians 1 says. Calling his future betrayer to his side models that Jesus preached to his disciples that we should love our enemies. And it made way for everything to happen according to his plan to accomplish his purposes. So the application for us is that God is in control. No matter the situation, if he can use the betrayal of a close friend to accomplish his will, he can work all things for his good according to his purposes. But you know, sometimes we can be like Peter, can't we? Unable or unwilling to see God's plan for us. But we don't need to know how God is going to use each and every specific particular moment in our lives for his glory we can trust that the one who gave up his life on our behalf is the one who knows what's best for us. So brothers and sisters, in conclusion, 
I pray you are encouraged by the reminder that God accomplishes his work in people and through people. And I pray that you consider with fresh insight both the work he has already done in your life and the work that can be done through you. Jesus, with all the power and knowledge that could be had, decided to spend his short time here on earth with very ordinary people. His ministry was booming, and yet he set his focus on a small number of people rather than the masses that came to him from all over the country. In doing so, he set up a discipleship and evangelistic plan that's been practiced uh, by Christians ever since. He created a new people, and he continues to make new people, people new today with every single person who turns from their sin and confesses Jesus as Lord, the kingdom of God expands and the angels in heaven rejoice. And just like he planned every step of the way during his life, he is sovereign over the wor- worldwide church and has planned every day out until the day that he returns and makes things new. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you as the sovereign Lord over all the earth, as the one who laid the foundations of the earth, as the one who prepared a way of salvation to mend the broken relationship caused by Adam uh, and by Eve. We praise you that you made a way to yourself through your son, Jesus, by giving him up on the cross. We thank you that you work all things for the good of those who love you. And Lord, we thank you for your revelation of your word to us, in which we can draw deep theological truths, even from, from passages that seem to just be lists of places and names at first sight. We praise you because you are a speaking God. We pray that you would continue to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.